I love sleeping on my Lisa mattress. You can try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This 100% American-made mattress ships compressed in a box right to your door. Or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Get $130 off and get a free pillow when you go to leesa.com slash women. In 1999, Martha Stewart became the first self-made female billionaire in the United States. Five years later, she was a federal convict. When she left prison in 2005, she came back to a faltering company, shattered image, and a fraction of the wealth she had built over 40 years as a lifestyle mogul. Close friends and business partners pulled away, unconfident she could ever recover. The public was largely thrilled by her demise, as though they had finally put her in her place. For all intents and purposes, Martha Stewart was done. All that was left for her was an early retirement. But Martha had other plans. She had spent her entire life building one of the largest media empires, and she wasn't going down without a fight. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who changed the face of business. We tell you how they changed the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we'd truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Martha Stewart's business principles have always been centered around passion and quality. But unlike other female entrepreneurs, she didn't set out with the aim of making herself the brand. For her, the brand was always a separate entity, a distinction that would later save her empire in 2005. As we'll cover in today's episode, she built a business based on a passion for cooking and a need to be her own boss. In doing so, she realized that she had discovered the key to any successful business, following a passion and finding a way to make it profitable. From there, the challenge becomes growth. Martha believes that the best businesses are those that can grow into large corporations, but start very concentrated and manageable. A small business that invests in quality and grows alongside their consumer base is poised for success. Martha Stewart is a machine. She hits the gym by 5.30 every morning and is famous for only sleeping around four hours a night. Her corporation, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, encompasses a sprawling landscape of magazines, radio shows, books, home goods, and television programs. 
When it went public in 1999, the company was valued at nearly $12 billion. It's no surprise that she's also considered one of the hardest working and most productive CEOs to ever hit the New York Stock Exchange. And when you consider her upbringing, it's easy to see where her ambition was fostered. The second oldest of six children, Martha was born on August 3, 1941, to parents who have been described as avid do it yourselfers. Martha's mother, who shares her name, taught her how to cook and sew, while her father, Edward, turned her into an expert gardener and round the house handyman. Edward was a noted perfectionist, rarely considering a task complete after just one try. Stewart has since noted that her father's strict sense of discipline instilled in her a self sufficiency that has served her well as a business mogul. But Martha has often cited her mother as her first true mentor. Not only did her mother teach her the ins and outs of maintaining a home and caring for a family, she taught her how to lead. Her mother ran a household of eight. Both adults worked full time and had demanding jobs. Edward was a pharmaceutical sales rep, and Martha Sr. was a teacher. As such, she had very little spare time to organize shopping lists, mitigate chores, cook meals, and keep up with all six of her children. Watching her mother run the house was Martha Stewart's first lesson in delegating work and setting expectations for those who follow you. Her relationship with her mother inspired Stewart's first business principle. She says, quote, A mentor will meet you halfway. When you are truly committed to your goals, curious to learn, and eager to work hard, great mentors will be pleased to share what they know. End quote. She believes that you must seek out mentors and work alongside them. Become their apprentice and trust that their passion will fuel your own passion in turn. Martha recalls learning from Warren Buffett, CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, as much as she learned from Julia Child, based simply on their charisma, business philosophy, and quality of leadership. If you can come to your mentor with passion and curiosity, they will challenge you to reach the rest of the way. You simply need to humble yourself enough to learn. I think it's easy to see where working alongside her mother inspired a great deal of leadership in Martha. Her mother expected a lot from her children by a young age. Yes, Martha Sr.'s children were incredibly capable children, and Martha was craftsman in chief. When Stuart was three, her parents moved their family from Jersey City. To a single family home in suburban Nutley, New Jersey. In Nutley, her fondness for domestic chores only grew. Her grandmother taught her how to put up preserves, and the next door neighbors, both retired bakers, taught her how to make all sorts of sweets. By the time she was in grade school, her penchant for party planning was already rearing its head. She used to plan all the birthdays for the kids in the neighborhoods because. Quote, I liked creating little dramas, end quote, and coming up with various party themes that suited each of her friends. As Martha entered high school, her good looks led to a career in modeling, posing for upscale department stores in New York City. 
She appeared in television ads and fashion magazines. She even modeled once for Chanel, another great woman of business covered in this series. But being a pragmatic and fastidious young woman, she prioritized her education. In fact, her top-notch grades earned her a partial scholarship to Barnard College in New York. Martha entered Barnard in 1959 as a chemistry major. Simultaneously, her modeling career started taking off in earnest, so much so that she was able to support herself on the modeling jobs she booked. In 1961, her modeling career received another boost when she was named one of America's 10 best-dressed college students by Glamour magazine. She was only 20 and already a full-time student and career woman. In the same year, she met Andrew Stewart, a student at Yale Law. They hit it off right away and married later that year. She took a one-year sabbatical from Barnard following the wedding, partially to help settle into married life and make a home for herself and her new husband. Not only did she set up their Manhattan apartment, but she also spent the weekends in the Berkshires with Andy, renovating an old schoolhouse the two used as a country getaway. Martha's brother George recalled summers spent with the couple, who he describes as generous and loving. Martha loved the Berkshires. George said she's the type who needs land to work. In the year the couple first settled in Manhattan, she was so desperate for a patch of green that she started raising orchids in the bathtub. Martha Stewart follows her passions unabashedly. In fact, when she returned to Barnard College in 1963, she ditched the chemistry major for a double major that better suited her tastes: European art history and architecture history. Following graduation, she continued to support her family through modeling while her husband Andrew established his law career. But when at 24, Martha's daughter Alexis was born in 1965, Stewart decided to leave the world of modeling in search of something more financially stable. In 1967, she landed work as a stockbroker at a boutique firm on Wall Street called Moness Williams and Seidel. She thrived in the competitive, fast-paced sales environment. She loved having a front row seat to watching massive corporations succeed and fail, always dependent on the strength of their leadership. It seemed to her that the most successful businesses were the ones that keyed into the needs of their consumers and reinvested in their image constantly. This would later become another of Martha's business principles: engage with your consumers and be clear about what you're selling them. An economic downturn in 1973 caused massive layoffs down Wall Street. While Martha retained her job, she and Andrew decided not to take chances. They took this as an opportunity to leave New York with their finances intact. They retreated to Westport, Connecticut, where they purchased an 1805 farmhouse called Turkey Hill. The dilapidated property was in need of massive repairs, but the Stewarts were up to the task. Despite pouring countless hours into renovating her new farmhouse, Martha still felt the need to channel her love of cooking into a more ambitious project. It was at Turkey Hill in her small basement kitchen that Martha Stewart would start a catering company called Uncatered Affair in 1975. 
At 35, Martha became a first-time entrepreneur. She has since said that she chose catering because cooking was her passion, and catering allowed her to make her passion profitable. Martha recalls the madness that ensued from trying to run a full-scale catering business out of a kitchen with no fridge. Luckily, she said, the basement was so cold that the food stayed refrigerated on its own. Bleak beginnings, but much as small acorns grow mighty oak trees, uncatered affair would lay the foundation for one of the largest media and retail empires in the world. Martha Stewart taught herself gourmet cooking by practicing every recipe in *Mastering the Art of French Cooking* by Julia Child. But when she started Uncatered Affair in 1975, she had no experience cooking for large numbers of people. Yet her first job was catering a wedding for 300, at the low rate of $12 a plate. Stewart recalls her ambitious inaugural menu that included such delicacies as salmon paste. It was so cost inefficient that she barely broke even. But Stewart felt a renewed zeal for her career in starting her catering business. She reminisces about pulling all-nighters to create the most intricate, unusual menus possible. She wanted to dazzle her clients. This would later morph into Martha's third business principle. Figure out what makes your product unique. Anyone can cater a party, but Martha became known for creating next-level soirees, complete with decor, cocktails, ambiance, and the occasional costume, always done with perfect execution. When it comes to food presentation, she sets her standards impeccably high. I never, never show a dinner without the table setting, without the ideas that go behind the entertaining feeling of the menu. I really think that that's very important. Making food look as good as it tastes is an art, but everybody can do it. Her meticulous attention to detail and vast well of ideas earned her features in two local publications: the Westport News and the Fair Press. She also began contributing articles on housekeeping, food, and gardening to national magazines like Good Housekeeping, House Beautiful, and Country Living. Before long, Stewart found herself in constant demand. She was the it entertainer among East Coast elites, and had a network of influential friends that would serve her for the rest of her career. All of her budding successes boiled down to that primary business principle. Quality. She and her team make a choice to reinvest in quality every single day. Much of her career, in fact, has been spent devising ways to infuse quality into every corner of her corporation, no matter how big her business grows. In just a few short years, Martha had found a way to take a personal passion, and had turned it into a booming business. This is her fourth business principle: identify a passion that consumes your time and energy, then find a way for that passion to be marketable. She calls this finding a big idea. For her, it was following a love of cooking to a catering business. Cooking was the passion; the catering business was the big idea. Martha swears that so long as your big idea stems from a personal passion, you will succeed. 
because you'll be excited to go to work in the morning and pour your heart into the task at hand. This principle came to her instinctually, but she has since articulated it into a business model that has helped countless followers begin their own business. As Stewart's business grew, so did her curiosity about the needs of her clients. She had always gotten feedback from the clientele to make her business more efficient. As time wore on, she began to find herself in more conversations with women who had hired a caterer because they didn't know how to entertain. At the time, there were books on how to cook, but there was no comprehensive manual on how to curate a party start to finish. Stewart saw a need and began to create her first book, Entertaining. It took a while for the book to sell. Most publishers didn't understand the need for a comprehensive party guide. There weren't any books like it on the market, but to Stewart, that was the point. In 1979, when Stewart was 38, a party guest at one of Stewart's events heard about her project and listened to her pitch. That guest worked at Crown Publishing and helped her gain a $25,000 advance to write the book. Crown Publishing hired a freelance writer named Elizabeth Hawes to help actualize Stewart's vision for the book. The book featured stunning photographs from Martha's meticulously decorated home, lavish spreads of food, and theme decor from a party maven's wildest dreams. The book caught on like wildfire and became the go-to guide on throwing distinguished, sophisticated parties. When it hit the shelves in 1982, it launched Stewart's career, earning her a national book tour, television interviews, and speaking engagements. Entertaining became the best-selling cookbook since Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking, who we're also covering in our series. This is also about when Stewart began coining her lifelong catchphrase, a good thing. She describes a good thing as any small practical solution or tip that makes everyday activities easier. The catchphrase became her seal of approval. Anything good enough for Martha was a must-have for her loyal followers. It's an easy way to infuse a personal touch into her brand. Another notable celebrity who capitalizes on this kind of endorsement-based relationship with her followers is the first queen of media, Oprah Winfrey. Starting in the 1990s, Oprah began an annual tradition of introducing a list of her favorite things. It included all the gadgets, home goods, and knickknacks that Oprah was excited about and wanted to share with her loyal fans. The list has generated a revenue bump known as the Oprah effect. All items featured on her list of favorite things receives a significant boost in sales and notoriety. Possibly the most extreme example of this was the light wedge. The light wedge was little more than a cool-looking book light. It featured a unique design, but didn't do much to revolutionize bedroom reading. Nevertheless, after landing on the favorite things list, its revenue jumped from $3,700 a day to over $90,000. People want a public figure like Oprah Winfrey or Martha Stewart to guide them towards products that will improve their lives. The connection to these women feels personal. The proof is in the sales. Following the success of Entertaining, Martha quickly published a series of other books. 
Martha Stewart's Quick Cook Menus, Martha Stewart's Hors d'oeuvres, Martha Stewart's Christmas, and Martha Stewart's Wedding Planner. Within 10 years, Martha had turned her company, Martha Stewart Incorporated, into a thriving business. Her clientele consisted of celebrities, politicians, and social elites. But this was only the beginning. A few key business deals would soon catapult Martha Stewart from thriving entrepreneur to nationwide celebrity. Now it's time for a quick break. The worst part of cat ownership is the litter box, but imagine having a lightweight, odorless, dust-free cat litter that monitors your cat's health and is delivered right to your door every month. That's Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter solves the pain of having a litter box, all while keeping tabs on your cat's health. It changes color when it detects common feline illnesses in your cat's pee. Typical cat litter is heavy, dusty, smells, and you need 30 pounds of it to last a month. Pretty Litter is lightweight, 80% lighter than other cat litters, and one four-pound bag lasts an entire month for one cat. It has the best odor control of any other cat litter, and it's dust-free. So say goodbye to dusty, smelly cat boxes. Discover the world's best cat litter today. Go to prettylitter.com and use code WOMEN to get 20% off your first order. That's P-R-E-T-T-Y-L-I-T-T-E-R.com and use code WOMEN. And here's something else we think you'll like. Payroll and benefits can be hard, especially for small businesses. You're not an expert in things like taxes and regulations. Luckily, Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. You don't have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service for your team. Because Gusto makes payroll a breeze. In fact, 9 out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Don't believe it? Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually love your payroll provider? Use Gusto so you can focus on your business, not payroll and paperwork. And to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash women. That's gusto.com slash women. Now, let's get back to the story. In 1987... When Martha Stewart was 46, she penned a lucrative deal with Kmart, signing on as the company's lifestyle consultant, complete with a custom line of Martha Stewart decor and home goods. The partnership with Kmart was symbiotic. In exchange for national exposure, Martha's keen eye helped elevate Kmart's image. At the time, Kmart was seen as a step down from Walmart, where consumers shopped for cheap products that weren't necessarily equated with quality or style. But having Martha products on their shelves gave their profits a much-needed boost, totaling up to $1 billion in annual sales. In fact, the New York Times has gone so far as to say Stewart's products have more than once protected Kmart from bankruptcy. Likewise, 
The deal helped Stewart develop a fan base that has been loyal to her for decades. Kmart wasn't anywhere near as posh as the stores that Martha frequented, but it was her first major move in becoming a business mogul. The deal secured $200,000 for Stewart to become the official Kmart spokesperson and an additional $90,000 per personal appearance made on Kmart's behalf. While not insanely lucrative, Stewart negotiated that Kmart would retain no royalties on her books sold in their stores. They also got exclusive access to her line of home goods. This was a shrewd way of maximizing the profits Stewart got out of the deal. Martha Stewart has always been pragmatic and had the ability to see the bigger picture. Her fifth business principle, focus on what's working, remove what's not. She tells an endearing story of her catering days when she was asked to cater a party for fellow Westporters Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Martha had just returned from a trip to Morocco with Andrew and was so enthralled with Moroccan cuisine that she convinced Newman and Woodward to allow her to cater their party with colorful Moroccan dishes. The hosts weren't particularly sold on the idea, but they trusted Martha's taste. The night of, she put some pies in the oven and got distracted. A fatal mistake. Every pie was burned. With no time to remake them, putting her professional reputation on the line. She thought, okay, I can overreact, but I cannot panic. She noticed that even though each pie was partially burned, there were also parts of every pie that were salvageable. She cut the pies into finger squares and took them to the event, and nobody was ever the wiser. True to her own principle, if it can't be salvaged, leave it behind. Richard Branson is another CEO who mastered this cut-and-go technique in business ventures. Currently valued at over $5 billion, he's proven time and time again that admitting failure and moving on is a formidable business model. Branson is open to his company, Virgin, expanding into any one of a number of pursuits, including mobile phones, airline services, and if all goes according to plan, outer space tourism. But he's also had his share of failures over the years. Virgin Cola, which he launched in 1994, Virgin Cosmetics in 1997, and Virgin Lingerie in 2003. He also tried Virgin Vodka, wine, energy drinks, a clothing line, wedding dresses, and a social networking site that was meant to replace Facebook. You've never heard of these ventures because they all quickly failed and Branson removed them off the market. He knew that his products weren't working. He cut his losses and reinvested in the parts of his company that were viable. Admitting defeat can oftentimes pave the way to victory if you're smart enough to stay calm, be resourceful, and keep focused on the task at hand. Martha's business was growing, but the energy she was throwing into her business took a toll on the rest of her relationships, so much so that in 1987, Andy moved out of Turkey Hill. Friends of the couple were shocked, as the two had always seemed close. But in private, the pair had been struggling to make their marriage work. 
Following a bitter three-year separation, the couple divorced in 1990. For the time being, Martha continued to live at Turkey Hill with her daughter Alexis. Some of the greatest entrepreneurs have found their stride in moments of hardship. Had Steve Jobs never been fired from Apple, he never would have gone on to create Pixar. Fred Smith received a failing grade at Yale University for his business project on an overnight parcel delivery service before going on to create FedEx. Following suit, Martha began to devote every waking second to her business, challenging herself to see how far Martha Stewart, Inc. could grow. It became the most important relationship in her life. This was the beginning of Martha's second chapter. Her focus was squarely on the future, and she had a very big idea. Voltaire once said, quote, the superfluous is a very necessary thing, end quote. And he was almost certainly speaking about a Martha Stewart Christmas special. Every year, Stewart demonstrates ways to make live wreaths, custom wrapping paper, and festive potpourri. Behind her, a room adorned with holly, garland, and a 12-foot Christmas tree ready to collapse from the weight of holiday cheer. It all looks perfect. Stuart is a woman of excess, and she wears it impeccably. It was this elevated sense of style that earned Martha Stewart so many followers at the beginning of her career. Although her crafts were elaborate and expensive, they were doable. She represented a type of luxury that, for the first time, seemed accessible to many middle-class women. It sold the idea that women really could have it all, career, family, a kempt home, and a Rolodex of simple but impressive casserole recipes. For Martha, being accessible to her fans was key. In 1990, when Stewart was 49, she partnered with Time Warner to publish her signature magazine, Martha Stewart Living. It was an instant success, so much so that in the year following, Stewart negotiated a 10-year, $15 million contract with Time Warner that included her magazine, television programs, videos like her heralded Christmas specials, and more how-to books on hors d'oeuvres, pies, gardening, even wedding planning. She also secured regular appearances on The Today Show as part of her contract, which swelled her fan base and gave her a platform to cross-promote her brand. By 1991, Martha Stewart Incorporated became Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia Incorporated. Stewart clearly took the word Omnimedia as a personal challenge. Later that year, she began publishing an additional magazine, followed quickly by her television show, Martha Stewart Living, in 1993, a syndicated newspaper column, a radio show, and a new series of cookbooks. All the while, her line of home goods was sold in every Kmart across the country. In the early 90s, Stewart's company was collecting a cool $763 million in annual retail sales. The key to Stewart's success was twofold, quality and synergy. If she had learned anything from her catering days, it's that the quality of the product is a business's calling card. Martha has often said that a successful businesswoman must put quality on a pedestal and choose to reinvest in quality every single day. 
Her obsession with quality is what made her the go-to expert on all things domestic. But a quality product isn't good to anyone unless it's visible. Stewart understood this from the jump. Her relationships with Kmart and Time Warner provided her with strong partnerships in both the retail and media spheres. She cross-promoted her television show and Martha Stewart Living products while making more money for the corporations who supported her. She was so successful that in 1997, she was able to buy back her magazine from Time Warner for an estimated $75 million. That year, her company dropped the Incorporated and became Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, with Stewart as chairman and chief executive officer. MSLO was the parent company for Martha Stewart Living, a series of books published under the same name and an arsenal of spin-off magazines, including Martha Stewart Weddings, Martha Stewart Kids, and Food Every Day, as well as her various other newspaper and radio projects. By the end of 1997, at 56, Martha Stewart was a national icon, self-made millionaire, and household name. As the 1990s drew to a close, she decided it was finally time to make the biggest, riskiest move of her career. In 1999, just 24 years after starting her small catering business, Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia went public. When it hit the New York Stock Exchange, the shares shot up from $18 to $38 per share, valuing the company at nearly $2 billion. This meant that, as a majority shareholder in the company, became the first woman in the United States to build a billion-dollar fortune from scratch. For the record, she arrived at the stock exchange that morning with a tray of brioche in hand. Commenting on the key to her success, Martha Stewart has said, quote, I wanted to make creativity equal to business, and I relish the fact that many of my editors and art directors became very competent in business. Sometimes business is frustrating, dealing with the bankers, accountants, quarterlies. You have to figure out how to do that and at the same time develop and create and produce, end quote. And her creativity is seemingly boundless. Stewart draws inspiration from every imaginable source. Her culinary icons are some of the greatest chefs of our time. Beloved sushi chef Nobu Matsuhisa, Michelin favorite Alain Ducasse, restaurant mogul Danielle Boulud, and the endlessly charismatic Jean-Georges Vongerichten, whose portfolio boasts 35 restaurants worldwide. An avid traveler, Martha also draws inspiration from every corner of the globe, from Venice to Yugoslavia to Mount Kilimanjaro. But no matter what she says, she and her close friends always end up in the kitchen. And with her swelling celebrity, that circle of close friends only grew more impressive, as did every other aspect of her life. In 2000, Stewart closed on a 152-acre estate in Bedford, New York, called Cantito Corners, originally built in 1784. Bedford is a ritzy hamlet in Winchester County with an upscale list of residents, most notably the Clintons. 
In fact, Stewart recalls a morning she came downstairs to find both President and Secretary Clinton waiting at her kitchen island, hoping to get a cup of coffee from Martha's new espresso machine. Martha had surrounded herself with powerful elites and gave herself ultimate creative freedom. She continually proved her own mantra to be true. Make as many friends as you can and always invest in quality. But from this creative freedom spawned her sixth and final business principle. Find a need and fill it with a quality product. In the early aughts, for example, Martha decided to redecorate a few rooms in her home. She had a very specific vision for the creamy whites and hunter greens she wanted to use. But as she went to several different hardware stores, she was surprised by the limited selection of colors. Seeing a gap in the market, she decided to create her own line of paint. She figured if she was unsatisfied with the paint colors at her disposal, certainly others would feel the same. Sherwin-Williams jumped at the chance to develop a line of paint with Stuart and asked her for samples of the colors she wanted to use. She gave it some thought and realized that the colors she loved most were the ones she saw walking around her home and grounds, the golden brown of her chickens, the creamy white of their eggs, the myriad of greens from the trees in her yards. She ended up bringing Sherwin-Williams over 600 samples of feathers, branches, leaves, linens, and dog hairs, colors that reminded her of home. Now at the time, Sherwin-Williams had this huge database that theoretically could analyze any color sample it was given, then mix up a shade of paint to match. Sherwin-Williams claimed the database could match any color known to man. It was considered to be the most comprehensive color database in the world. And yet, of Martha's 600 samples, the database could only color match 10. The other 590 samples represented brand new paint colors never before put on the market. The profit potential of these new colors was incredibly exciting. After an exhaustive process, Stewart and her team landed on 416 colors to include in the Martha Stewart Living paint line, which hit Sherwin-Williams shelves in 2002. Also by 2002, Martha Stewart Living magazine was circulating 2 million copies per issue, up from 250,000 on its initial release, and her television show found millions of viewers worldwide. In June, she joined the board of directors at the New York Stock Exchange. She was now one of the most powerful women in the country. But she would only hold that seat for a few short months before everything she had built would come tumbling down. She would be publicly humiliated, her company wrapped in a scandal from which it would never fully recover. It's time to take another break. Maud Cloth's mission is to serve and celebrate their community, inspire individual style, and empower women to be the best version of themselves. That's why their signature line of apparel is offered in a full size range from extra extra small to 4X. Mod Cloth is the greatest. I bought two graphic tees, a retro glam rock the boat tee, and a cute tail the end of time tee. I even got some adorable pineapple socks. I couldn't resist. I'm getting ready for summer, so I got these darling slingback sandals in noir. 
They look great and they're so comfortable. To get 15% off your purchase of $100 or more, go to modcloth.com and enter code WOMEN at checkout. Hurry, this offer expires on September 1st, 2018. That's modcloth.com and enter code WOMEN at checkout for 15% off your purchase of $100 or more. Now, let's get back to the story. On December 27, 2001, Martha Stewart sold 4,000 shares of Imclone, a pharmaceutical company that was pushing a cancer drug called Herbitux. The day after Stewart relinquished her shares, the FDA rejected Herbitux and its stock value plummeted. The Securities and Exchange Commission, which protects investors in the stock market against fraud, among other things, believed that Stewart had been tipped off to the FDA's decision regarding Herbitux. Her stockbroker, Peter Bakanovic, allegedly told her that Imclone CEO Sam Waxel was dumping his stock in the company and that Stewart should do the same. Waxel, for the record, would later plead guilty to six counts of insider trading. Stewart quickly found herself hit by a tidal wave of scandal. She resigned from the NYSE Board of Directors in October of 2002, a position she was only allowed to enjoy for four months. About eight months later, on June 4, 2003, a federal grand jury handed down a 41-page indictment, charging Stewart with nine counts, including securities fraud, obstruction of justice, making false statements to prosecutors and the FBI, and conspiracy. These were federal charges, putting prison time on the table. Stewart maintained her innocence throughout the entire ordeal and even went so far as to defend herself in a full-page editorial in USA Today. But all of this did little to squelch the waning trust in her brand. Martha was also forced to step down as chairman and CEO of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, instead relegating herself to founding editorial director, a position created in order to afford her some control over her life's work. During this time, both company stock and her personal net worth plummeted by millions of dollars. A one-time billion-dollar company, MSLO found itself being valued at barely $300 million. In a moment of desperation, Martha even considered going back to her maiden name to preserve the Martha Stewart brand. In a statement, she said, MSO had to combat a great deal of negative publicity surrounding my personal affairs, which has unfairly overshadowed the great work being done at the company. The fact that MSO has managed to increase quarterly revenue in this environment is a testament to the strength of our business and the superb work of hundreds of our employees. Despite every effort on the part of her legal team, Martha was indicted and taken to court. On January 20, 2004, when Martha was 63, her trial began amidst a media firestorm. In February, a judge threw out the insider trading fraud charge, but the jury found her guilty of obstructing justice and giving false statements to investigators. On March 5, 2004, Stewart was found guilty on four counts. In July, she was sentenced to five months in prison. 
an additional five months on house arrest and fined $30,000. Typically, said sentencing would begin an appeals process that could very well drag on for years. Stewart considered the damage that her company and brand had already taken and decided that the best course of action was to accept the prison sentence, serve her time, then begin the slow process of rebuilding. In October 2004, Martha Stewart checked in at FPC Alderson in West Virginia, where she would be a federal inmate until March 2005. Stewart says she thinks about her time in prison as a single chapter in her life and has put it behind her completely. In an interview with Matt Lauer following her release, Stewart said she found the entire ordeal to be a waste of time that distracted her from running her business. Shortly after her release, Stewart was a guest on Conan O'Brien, where she laughed about all the dumb ways she kept herself busy in the big house. With little at her disposal, she learned how to make creme caramel in the microwave. She melted sugar and a bit of water in a dish that she found sitting underneath a plant holder. She would also candy fruits for the other inmates, and at one point figured out how to make a poor man's custard. She mentioned that her chore was to clean the shoe, or special holding unit, to which Conan joked, quote, I bet you were very thorough, end quote. On David Letterman, she set the record straight on rumors that she'd been in a fight. I slipped on some wet floor and I got a really bad black and blue mark on my arm. And people noticed that black and blue mark yeah. I got called right down and uh, wanted to know who I had been in a fight with. Oh, man. <laughs> she knew she could repair her reputation with good humor. Of course, to Stewart, the biggest joke is that this entire ordeal could have been avoided if she would have kept her shares in Imclone. Due to the scandal, prison sentence, and trial by public opinion, Stewart lost $330 million between 2002 and 2005. By selling her shares in Imclone early, she saved a measly $45,000. Some would say that Stewart paid twice for her crimes. Her downfall evoked a sense of bloodthirst in the public. Lenore Scanese of the Daily News summed up these feelings aptly. Quote, she is too confident, too competent, too rich. She's even too pretty. End quote. Writer David Plotz with Slate pointed out that while Martha did indeed commit a crime, there are many male CEOs guilty of far worse who have yet to serve prison time. Kenneth Lay and Jeff Skilling of Enron, for starters. Plotz writes, quote, This trial was more about reprimanding this cunning businesswoman for her personality than about punishing her actual criminal offense. End quote. And indeed, over three million people watched her get sentenced to prison on national television, treating it like a sporting event. For many, it felt like she was being punished for being unapologetically successful. Stewart once joked that people would prefer she dig a hole and jump in it and hide instead of continually assert her dominance in a male-driven media industry. Although for some, the thing that makes her so repelling is the very talents that made her famous in the first place. Admittedly, her crafts and recipes can be incredibly intricate and largely impractical, occasionally bordering on insane. 
Part of the fun of watching Martha Stewart is stepping into her extravagant lifestyle, but many wonder if she realizes that that extravagance is out of reach for the majority of Americans. Her fans find the opulence fun, but her critics see it as proof that she's wildly out of touch. Sure, many millennials happily join her in making their own soaps and putting up preserves, both as a means of quality control and cutting corners. But in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts, many felt that she was promoting a sexist agenda, perpetuating the idea that women belonged in the home. Even more harsh are the nagging rumors that Stewart is downright cruel. An unauthorized biography, Just Desserts, claims that Stewart was abusive to her ex-husband and cold to her daughter. In 1997, a Long Island gardener accused Stewart of assault after she allegedly tried to run him over with her car for putting up fencing on what was technically her property. Forbes reported that she's known for making her employees cry. Furthermore, Stewart's daughter Alexis published a book about what it was like growing up as the daughter of America's favorite DIYer. Alexis wrote that while her mother strove to be Americana encompassed on national television, she fell short as a mother at home. Quote, If I didn't do something perfectly, I had to do it again. I grew up with a glue gun pointed at my head. End quote. Although, like most mother-daughter relationships, Alexis and Martha's is a complex one. Despite criticizing her mother, Alexis has often come to Martha's defense. It started, I think, as an envy thing, and she makes you feel inadequate, so it's easy to think that she doesn't have a sense of humor. And it's, it has never been her intention to make anyone feel inadequate. Exactly. Sources close to the family have said that despite their somewhat tumultuous relationship throughout Alexis's childhood, the two grew close while Martha was in prison and have had a working relationship ever since. Martha faces far less criticism these days, possibly because her strong personality feels more commonplace today than it did when she started out, or possibly because there isn't anything new to say. And truthfully, Whatever you think of Martha personally, she is certainly worthy of admiration. She built a business from scratch based on the principles we've discussed, engaging consumers, mentoring them, and infusing their lives with quality. Plotz went on to write, quote, Martha has a puritanical sensibility. She believes in the uplifting power of work. She instructs you so that you will know how to create objects yourself, grow plants yourself, learn home repair yourself, cook food yourself. Doing something well is good and liberating and fulfilling." End quote. And cost-effective, too. The simpler bath soap recipes on her website would cost $10 at a trendy apothecary, but for mere pennies on the dollar could be made at home en masse and distributed to all your family and friends at Christmas. Martha is authentic. This is the genius to her business model. She is endlessly passionate about her brand and its potential for growth, which allows her to be on trend without feeling trendy. Following her release from Alderson in 2005, Stewart wasted no time in rebuilding her business. She created a new daytime cooking show, The Martha Stewart Show, 
and developed a weekly radio show on Sirius Satellite Radio. It was a call-in show that encouraged fans to engage with Stewart on a personal level. She also released a new book, The Martha Rules, which details the way in which she followed a personal passion, homemaking, and turned it into a big idea, her catering business, which in turn was able to grow into a media empire. The book reads like a manifesto, the ways by which she would rebuild her own business while cheerleading her fans onto similar success. In less than a year, Stewart was able to make Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia profitable again. A book, a TV show, and a radio program, she crammed some people's entire career into about 12 months. Her immediate success impressed even some of her most avid doubters. But when you consider her work ethic and brilliant mind, it should have come as much less of a surprise. You know, Martha once admitted on television that she has been struck by lightning three times. Do not tell this woman that creative genius won't strike twice. After fulfilling the terms of her plea agreement to not sit on the board of any corporation for five years following her prison sentence, Martha returned to the board of MSLO in 2011. The Martha Stewart Show ran until 2012. A few months after wrapping, she launched a new show with PBS called Martha Stewart's Cooking School. That same year, Martha also resumed her role as chairman of Martha Stewart Omnimedia. Under her guidance, Omnimedia was able to branch out into four distinguished areas publishing, broadcast, internet, and merchandising, all of which were able to cross-promote one another. In addition to Martha Stewart Living, MSLO added several magazines to their repertoire, including non-Martha-centric, everyday food, and body and soul. But Martha's comeback is far from a unique story. The most well-known business comeback is probably Steve Jobs. In 1985, Jobs left Apple, a company he co-founded, after he was fired for his intense management style. Like Stewart, Jobs left the company disgraced, but he also did not let this setback undermine his overall ambition. Jobs used his time away to found a startup called Next, a company that was working on revolutionary software. Apple, meanwhile, struggled without their former leader and in a desperate move, purchased Next and reinstalled Jobs as the CEO in 1997. Jobs reorganized the whole company. He launched wildly popular computers based on easy user interface, began work on the iPod, and started planning Apple's famed retail stores. Much like Stewart, he used his time away from the company to reassess some fundamental organizational principles. Stewart came back stronger than ever. For decades, she was the brand. But since 2005, the company has started to transcend Martha. It has become a legacy. So much of Martha's success can be attributed to her ability to sever the things that aren't working, consolidate, and move onto her next big idea. She once wrote, quote, Being an entrepreneur requires a person to do more than just go to work, much more than just do a job. It requires eyes in the back of one's head, constant learning, curiosity, unflagging energy, 
good health, or at least a strong constitution that will ward off illnesses, and even the strength and desire to put up with sleep deprivation and long hours of intense concentration." End quote. In her book, The Martha Rules, she talks about having three lenses at the entrepreneur's disposal. A wide-angle lens, a telescope, and a microscope. The wide-angle lens helps you to step back and take a look at every moving part of your company or business. Conversely, the microscope is handy to ensure that quality is still seeping its way into every part of your business. The third angle is the telescope. It's what allows you to block everything out and focus on the future, be it a television show getting canceled, a paint line getting discontinued, or a federal conviction that delivers a massive blow to your brand. The telescope keeps the business focused when the periphery is shrouded in chaos. In 2014, at 73, Stewart was named one of CNBC's top 25 leaders, icons, and rebels who have changed the face of business since 1989. This was after building her empire twice. Stewart once said, quote, The opportunity of a lifetime will not be your last, end quote. Meaning, you will always have the option of picking up and rebuilding. All good business people fail at some point. A strong leader can scrape the burnt off the toast and keep going. For Martha, part of that meant expanding her brand into uncharted territory. Although a longtime queen of daytime TV, she had for the most part been a solo act. Her allure was her New England charm, nestled into a colonial farmhouse. Which is what made her 2016 television show such an unexpected surprise. Since the fall of 2016, Martha Stewart has been cooking with rapper Snoop Dogg on their VH1 show Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner. The show initially drew skepticism from fans of both media moguls. Snoop had made a career as a rapper whose only familiarity with baked goods would seem to be laced with THC, a stark contrast to Martha's suburban charm. Perhaps the best review of the show came from Australia's special broadcasting service. Quote, At first glance, Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart appear to have little in common. On closer inspection, this is totally confirmed. But the two have actually been good friends for over a decade, since Snoop first appeared on her show in 2008. But it wasn't until 2015 that they decided to begin working together, after reconnecting while working on the Comedy Central roast of Justin Bieber, of all things. Over the next year, they developed a cooking show called Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party, which immediately earned a coveted 100% fresh on reviewer website Rotten Tomatoes, in part due to the charming banter between the two. Martha teaches and Snoop makes her laugh. Vanilla is burgundy? Brown, yeah. Why do they call it vanilla and it's burgundy? <laughs> Vanilla. vanilla doesn't mean white, it means vanilla. Okay. It's the flavor. 
Martha has spent 45 years building a successful career adhering to the basic business principles that she's been developing since she launched her catering business in 1975. First and foremost, committing to quality every single day in every way possible, setting the market standard for a great product so you emerge as a leader in your field. Engage in the mechanisms of teaching, both by working with a mentor who will guide you and by engaging your consumers to better understand their lifestyle, needs, and the way your company fits into their daily routine. Identify a passion that consumes your time and find a way to make it profitable. But don't just follow the crowd. Figure out what makes your product unique. What niche does it fill in the market? Figure out what works and leave the rest behind. And finally, keep going. If we've learned anything from Martha Stewart, it's that nobody can take you out of the game but yourself. Her work ethic has seen her through time and time again, allowing her a half-century reign as queen of the American kitchen. Long may she bake. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Great Women of Business is written by Aaron Lan and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You're not an expert in things like taxes and regulations. That's why Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Plus, to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com women. That's gusto.com slash women.